Can a captive insurance arrangement provide a viable alternative risk planning model? And how can you help your clients go from insurance buyer to insurance owner? We'll find out on this episode of Shift Shapers. Change either paralyzes or energizes. The choice is yours. You're listening to the Shift Shapers podcast. You're about to learn firsthand from businesses and entrepreneurs who have successfully shaped the shifts in their industries. Get ready to become the change that you want to see. Here's your host and chief transformation strategist, David Saltzman. Today's episode is brought to you by HR360, the trusted source for customizable compliance tools used by brokers and their clients nationwide. Their monthly benefits newsletter, ACA alerts, RAP SPDs, HR library, and other attorney review tools will help you keep your clients and win new ones, and at a cost that will amaze you. We are pleased to welcome back to the podcast Mark Gagne, who is the co-owner and chief innovation officer at Boris Law Insurance. For some of you who are very, very devoted listeners, you will remember that Mark was the very first guest that we had on the Shift Shapers podcast when we started broadcasting a little bit more than a year ago. So at that time, we talked about bending the trend and structural insurance arrangements, and we're going to kind of take that into a more specific realm today. But with that, welcome back, Mark. Uh, Thank you, David. Nice to be with you again this morning, and congratulations on the success of your podcast series. Well, thank you so much. It's very kind of you to say. What we're going to be discussing today is a subject that you've gained an awful lot of knowledge about over the last few years, and that's captives. And it's a subject that I think a lot of our listeners may have heard of, maybe don't really know quite so much about. But I I know from talking to you about it extensively that there are some precursors to having the actual mechanical captive discussion that you like to take clients through or prospects through. And the first thing is what you call a buying philosophy. Could you explain that a little bit? Sure. I think uh, when you start talking about a captive insurance arrangement, let's start first with what it is. It's a partially self-funded financing solution for healthcare. And so the buyer's mindset is a very important part of the discussion with your clients and prospects. And what I mean is that there's a difference between being an owner of the risk and a buyer of the risk. And so let me talk to you about that. When you're a buyer of healthcare or health insurance, you're looking for the lowest price. You're looking for an organization to pay your claims. You're looking to cover your risk, and it's more like a traditional insurance purchase, uh, which most of us might be familiar with. Why is a captive different is because the mindset is more of an ownership mindset, where you're looking to pay the right price, not necessarily the lowest. What's the appropriate price based on quality and cost of that particular healthcare service? You're looking for a third-party administrator or a health insurance plan to adjudicate your claims and to analyze those claims to look at emerging trends about what healthcare cost drivers and health risk issues might be. You're looking to control losses by being proactive in fixing defects before uh, they become a problem uh, with regard to higher healthcare challenges. And you make the purchase of your healthcare and health insurance an integral part of your business versus a product that you might purchase from one year to the next. So the question we always start with our clients and prospects is, are you an owner of the economics or a passive buyer? Well, and that that's a great differentiation. I, mean, I think a lot of folks don't think about that a lot. I know one of, one of our other podcast guests, Jeff Hogan, talks extensively with his brokers and his clients about kind of something similar. And 
it's suggesting to the client that they consider their benefit plan as they would any other corporate asset rather than just considering it as a, a medical plan and, and looking at it in a broader canvas. And I think that's kind of the, the buying philosophy direction that we're all going to have to go. But I know that once you get past that conversation, you also think there's three mindsets that, that a purchaser has. I do. And those three mindsets really transcend themselves from the philosophy that we just talked about. And so let me walk you through each of those. The first is what's traditionally called a cost shifter. Uh, This type of client uh, embarks on strategies to decrease the cost of their program uh, in varying degrees and approaches. And it's what we would consider to be more reactive to the Affordable Care Act. The second area, which is the predominant area where most people sit, is what we call a fence sitter. And a fence sitter sounds like it's described, which is a strategy to make small changes or take a wait-and-see approach, likely to adopt multiple strategies in both cost shifter and the third category, which I'm going to talk about, which is being an innovator. But this fence sitter both has a foot in the world of reactivity to the ACA and also proactivity. They're kind of sampling around the edges, if you will. If you take a look at being an innovator, that's really being a disruptor in changing the way in which people look at healthcare and they finance their healthcare. The strategy here, when we're talking to folks about a captive, is to create a community of health and well-being to help improve the health and well-being of the employees and their family members that are covered under that health care plan to improve quality and lower cost and transforming the workplace experience. So advisors really need then to go through these steps, in your opinion, and they need to, I guess the next step would be to help the clients devise a, a strategy to move forward. What's that conversation like? So I think the first thing to start out with is to help people understand what a captive insurance arrangement is, and that's not something new and fancy. Self-funding's actually been around for quite a long time, since the 1950s. It's a healthcare financing vehicle used by 90% of the Fortune 500 companies in the world. And if you think about it, there are over 6,000 captives domiciled in the world today. I think the important part to start with is a captive provides insurance to and is controlled by its owner members. This is not a program. It can be structured that way, but it's not a program where the broker consultant owns it or a health insurance company owns it. It starts out being that the insured, the plan sponsor, is the one who owns the program. Captives can be formed as a single parent, a group, or an association, and they can be in an industry niche, what we would call a homogenous pool or a heterogeneous mix, which you might think of as a typical insurance company's pool where you have a variety of industries and sizes that are represented. What makes the captive financing structure unique is that it replicates the size and stability of a larger employer to help those smaller employers. And when I say smaller, I mean between the sizes of 50 and three or 400 employees. But it provides them the scale that a larger organization might get when they go to market relative to looking at a self-insured or a partially self-insured option. And so having that bigger pool does what? what? What's the benefit? So the benefit of the pool is twofold. One, the first thing a captive provides to its owner members is control. Uh, control over their future because they ultimately are financing the health care that they're helping their employees take advantage of. But the larger pool, as we all know, Insurance is the law of large numbers. So what the larger pool allows a captive arrangement to do is to create the opportunity for an employer to have less volatility 
in their costs from one year to the next. Now, when I say volatility, what does that mean? Well, if you take a look at risk and look at two axes, so if you can imagine an X and a Y axis with severity and frequency, let's talk about claims and the predictability or lack thereof and why a captive insurance arrangement is a much more efficient way of purchasing healthcare. There are areas of your healthcare expenses that are highly predictable. These are the lumps and bumps, the aches and pains, the broken bones, the things that are not life-threatening. And let's say these uh, types of services are less than $50,000 for any one particular claiming event. That's an area of risk that health insurance companies love because it's the most predictable and they make the most amount of profit from this fully insured carriers, uh, companies rather that they put into that fully insured program. This is an area of risk that you want to, as an employer, retain because you have a high degree of control over the impact of the spend that your employees and their dependents have in these these areas of healthcare. The second area is what we call a shared layer, and this is really the captive insurance layer. And essentially what it allows a group of employers to do is to share risk for claims that exceed that $50,000 number that I just talked about but is below another number, let's call that $250,000. These are areas of risk that are less predictable, but still somewhat predictable. So they're beyond aches and pains and lumps and bumps. They might be minor surgical procedures. They could be a hip replacement, a knee replacement, you know, types of surgeries that also could be somewhat life-threatening, but at the end of the day, that we know that there's a medical procedure that can bring that person back to health. That's an area of risk that an employer should want to share because, again, it's less predictable, but still somewhat predictable. And those are the areas of claims that would really, if that employer who was 50 employees was trying to self-insure, would make the cost of stop-loss insurance or reinsurance uh, less attractive for them. And then let's say the claims that are above $250,000. Those are the claims that are completely unpredictable. Think about uh, an organ transplant or the premature delivery of twins or a hemophiliac. These claims are substantial in nature and they are highly unpredictable. Those are areas of risk that an employer should transfer away to an insurance company because they are so unpredictable and because they can be so catastrophic financially. And now a word from our sponsor. Brokers nationwide are using HR 360's low-cost, easy-to-use RAP SPD generator, RAPDOC 360, to make sure their clients have ERISA-required RAP SPDs and plan documents. Actually, over 110,000 sets of RAP documents were sold just in the last 12 months. If your client gets audited by the DOL, the first phone call they make will be to you, looking for their SPDs and plan documents, so make sure your clients are compliant. Developed by HR 360's staff of attorneys and a leading ERISA law firm, this simple, intuitive system makes it so easy to customize RAP SPDs for each client, and the cost is surprisingly affordable. In fact, many brokers are actually charging for each document, so your RAP SPD generator becomes a new profit center for you. Get free demo access, no credit card required, so you can find out just how easy it is to generate RAP SPDs at rapdoc360.com. To learn more about all of the great services HR360 has that can help you differentiate yourself and deliver more value, click on the sponsor link at shiftshapersonline.com or email sales at hr360.com. So here's a question that I'm sure comes up often in the preliminary discussions. I'm an employer. I'm interested in investigating this whole captive arrangement thing a little bit further. 
But one of the things that I'm concerned about is that if I'm in a, a pool with a bunch of other employers and I have a great year, but the employer down the street who's also in the captive has a crummy year, does that kill my cost? Do my costs go up because they didn't have a good, healthy year? And the answer, short answer to that question is no. Um, at the end of the day, what a captive provides is the opportunity for the organizations who are purchasing to deal with the one year. When you take a look at experience, right? Traditionally, groups have out of every five years, four or five years, one year is going to be a very challenging year for claims that they had uh, no ability to predict. Importantly, in a captive program, the program will perform poorly if there's a high frequency of claims from all of the organizations that are purchasing together, not severity of claims. So the one claim or the two, two claims that might be severe in nature, but uh, it will perform poorly if there's a high frequency of claims from all of the entities that are covered in the captive insurance arrangement. The program can perform well. However, even if some organizations in that pool do not. So if you can imagine, if you have a captive with 10 or 15 or 20 different organizations, two or three or four of them might experience a bad year, but the others have not because they're not in that once out of every four or five year cycle where they're going to have a challenging claim year. The reinsurer does not have to have a good year for the program to have a good year. And what I mean by that is essentially if there's a million-dollar claim or a $2 million claim, that's not going to wipe out the captive uh, insurance layer, but it will cause the reinsurer to have to pay those excess claims above the 250000 that I talked about. So it is possible for a program to perform very well uh, for the organizations below their that $50,000 number that I talked about, but also have some really large claims that cause the reinsurer to lose money. So those are the different ways when you take a look at the way a captive insurance arrangement works that you're ultimately helping to shield that group, any that pool of groups, if you will, from any one particular claim. But if you don't front end underwrite, which really gets to the heart of your question, it's important that when you're putting groups into a structure like this, you're asking them two questions to vet them. The first is, what is your level of risk tolerance? Not every group has the same level of tolerance, and it's important for you to assess that as an advisor up front. Somebody who comes to you or a client who comes to you and says, I don't have a strong balance sheet, I'm living from check to check, would not be an organization we would consider to be highly risk tolerant. An organization that has a strong balance sheet but is interested in assuming some risk would be an organization that we would consider to be risk tolerant. The second side of that, though, is suitability. And suitability says, even if I have a high degree of comfort with risk, I also need to see if my underlying risk is one that I should take on. And so we have some clients that we've talked to about this, that they love the idea of having more control and being able to influence the direction of their future, put it in their own hands. But when we look at the suitability of their claim experience, I can think of a few groups we've talked to where they've had loss ratios in excess of 150%, even, and that's year after year after year because they have some very uh, challenging health, health risk issues. Even if an organization like that wanted to come into a captive insurance arrangement, as an advisor, you would advise them not to. They should be in a situation where they're transferring that risk uh, to the insurance company. So in short, it's important to assess the risk tolerance and the suitability for any particular organization moving in this direction because you are taking on some level of risk through this captive insurance arrangement. So kind of a a two-part question then. The first part is you talked earlier about homogenous and heterogeneous pools. 
let's take that in kind of a different little tangent and ask the question, are captives usually confined to a particular class or type of employer? Or could a captive be set up that had all different kinds of employers? Short answer is you can set it up as either an industry-focused captive, or you can set it up as a pool of industries. So the short answer to your question would be, first of all, the organization's most underwriting, most underwriters or most stop-loss carriers will not go below 50 enrolled employees. So the first thing is to know that it's going to be a challenge in the market to find a reinsurer that will write below 50 enrolled people just because of the ability to assess that risk. So size definitely plays a role in this discussion. But from an industry standpoint, there's two schools of thought there. Um, homogenous, we believe, and this is what we're marketing here at our agency, we're marketing a homogenous risk pool because we believe the ability to predict risk when you have the same types of organizations from an industry that are purchasing together it allows you to do a couple things. One, you really have a good fundamental understanding of the risk because it's very similar from organization to organization. What that allows you to do is be much more predictive with what's going to happen and they'd be more proactive in terms of the programs that you put in place. And then thirdly, the communication can be very consistent because it is industry specific versus having a heterogeneous pool where you have a, you know, a, an engineering firm, a manufacturer, uh, school, those are all very different entities who are used to receiving messages with different types of language which can make it very challenging. So again, from a risk management standpoint, it's, there's no right or wrong answer about being homogenous or heterogeneous. Our own personal bias is to make them homogenous for the reasons I just stated. So if, if I'm a benefit advisor and I think I've got client or clients who might benefit from this kind of arrangement, how do I go out in the universe and start finding the right captive or do I start a captive? What's that process? Therein lies the million dollar question, David. Uh, When we first began to explore the notion of a captive insurance arrangement, we quickly found out that the creation or the capital required to create the entity uh, is about three quarters of a million to a million dollars. When you take a look at the regulatory issues, the legislative issues, the finance issues, the actuarial issues, creating your own structure if you use them in the early beginning. Having said that, there are organizations who want to own their own structure. So if you have clients, that is the advisor has clients who have strong balance sheets and want to create their own structure, that is absolutely something that you can entertain. Just know that is a costly value proposition in the very beginning. So let's transition to, okay, what do we do if we don't have that capital to start our own? There is this notion out there or this structure, I should say, that's been created called a segregated cell group captive. And a segregated cell group captive is essentially a contract that's provided by specific reinsurers. So if you take a look at stop loss insurers out there, not every one of them offer a captive structure, but there are several out there that offer offer a captive insurance arrangement where they've actually created that structure. They've paid the million dollars or three quarters of a million dollars to capitalize it, to get the regulatory work done, to make sure that it's up and operating. Think of it like somebody who owns an apartment building. You're essentially going to rent a room inside that apartment building that's been built. You haven't paid for the building of that apartment building. You are renting inside of it until you have enough critical mass to create enough surplus in that captive layer that then you could evaluate now moving from being a renter to being a buyer. And that would be what I talked about in the very beginning in terms of owning your own structure. 
So there are a couple of paths that you can move down uh, to at least put your foot in this water, this new water of healthcare financing on a partially self-funded basis for smaller groups. As an advisor, how do I how do I find a captive? Let's say that I understand. I've listened to this interview. It's been very informative. I know that I've got two or three clients who might be perfect for this, but I also know that I don't have the time or the interest or the capital to to raise to to form a captive. How do I find a captive that's up and operating that we might take these employers to? You know, the good news is several years ago, no one even really understood or it wasn't very much talked about, about the notion of a captive insurance arrangement. What we've seen in the last couple of years is an advent or an offshoot, I should say, of the ACA uh, is the notion of bringing groups in this smaller end of the market to be self-insured or partially self-insured. So what you would do as an advisor is you would work through or contact your reinsurers that have a very big presence in your marketplace. Uh, There are several that operate in this space. Um, I won't name them off, but there are, if you were to contact SIA as an example, uh, the society that uh, governs or the association that governs self-insured plans, they would be able to provide you with a list of stop-loss carriers that actually provide a captive insurance arrangement. And then over and above that, you're going to want to make sure that you work with informed advice, especially as it relates to plan documents. And I'll give everybody a little hint here. There's an organization called the FIA Group here in the Boston area, P-H-I-A Group, LLC. That organization actually is a fantastic resource to help make sure your clients, if they're going to move in this direction, put together plan documents that hang together. And what I mean by that is you've got a plan document for the plan that's being sponsored, and you've got to make sure that that plan document is connected tightly with the TPA you're working with to administer the claims and also the stop-loss contract that governs what's reimbursed and what's not reimbursed. And for those of you who may have missed it, we interviewed a few episodes back. We interviewed Adam Russo, who is the principal at the FIA Group, and you might want to go back and kind of listen to that or re-listen to that interview. Mark, in the minute or two that we've got left, one of the questions we always like to wrap up with is where do you see the future of captives in the near term and then in the, in the longer term? What do you see that kind of growth and, and what direction do you see them taking? So if we take a look at the market, especially between 50 and 100 lives, right now the ACA requires in 2016 that that market be merged into the small group marketplace, which essentially means it will be moved from what's called community rated by class or CRC, where there's some level of underwriting in most markets to a community rated marketplace, which essentially removes the element of risk assessment and then also provides to those employers in that marketplace a heavy burden that will be placed on them relative to the HIT tax, that is the health insurance company tax, and also with regard to the shift of premium dollars that will be required for them to pay to help subsidize a small group in the individual marketplace. So what I see in the future is that there'll be more employers looking at the notion of being self-insured. I think the danger here is that a lot of brokers, producers, agents, advisors don't have the skill set to necessarily administer and put in place a self-funded program. So I would encourage all your listeners to first go through the National Association of Health Underwriters self-funding certification course to make sure you understand self-funding and make sure you understand the language and the mechanical parts. The advantages of a captive program I see are very promising for that market segment who traditionally has not been able to avail themselves of self-insured financing. They've always had fully insured financing. Why are we excited about the captive insurance arrangement? We're excited about it because it gives 
our employer groups and prospective employer groups more control over future costs. Just off the, off the start, by being self-insured, they're sidestepping the hit tax, which is a 2 to 7% savings or cost aversion, if you will, by virtue of being self-insured versus fully insured. The second thing is it allows you to create a risk pool that removes the barriers that state lines present in the form of a fully insured contract. As you know, and your listeners know, you cannot combine risk uh, on a fully insured basis in the community-rated marketplace under the ACA. What this structure allows you to do is actually create a national or a regional or even a local risk pool that knocks down those barriers to growth. It's invisible to employees and their family members. It's a financing structure as opposed to a benefit structure. And essentially, all the information and cost communications become transparent. The organization shares risk to control volatility and improve cash flow. And ultimately, they retain underwriting profit and investment income that the insurance company may have held on to or did hold on to in the past. The disadvantages, if I could be really quick about that, are you're assuming risk for poor claim experience. So if you've got an organization that's not invested in consumerism, health and well-being, is not invested in helping their people develop or their organization develop a community of health and well-being, it's probably not the right answer for them. You are also assuming administrative responsibility as a plan sponsor to run the plan. So there is a little bit more work for that plan sponsor and that broker and advisor to do. And finally, because it is self-insured and you're actually reimbursing claims as they're incurred, it can be a little bit more difficult to budget. So you need to make sure that you have the proper planning and sophistication in place to be able to give your clients uh, those budgeting tools and resources that they need. But in the end, what I believe the captive insurance arrangement represents, you take a look at that 50 to 99 marketplace, that's about a third of the uh, insured people in our country. We have about 150 million people that are privately insured. That's a pretty big market swath of organizations that are going to be negatively impacted, at least in the near term, many of them, by the ACA. This structure, this financing vehicle, could be a way for those organizations to sidestep some of that cost and provide them with more control and direction over their future. Mark, thanks for a really interesting discussion about a topic that I think is going to, I agree with you, is going to take more and more prominence and and more interest among benefit advisors. Mark Gagne, co-owner and chief innovation officer of the Boris Lowe Insurance Group. Mark, thanks again for sharing your expertise with the Shift Shapers audience. Thank you, David. Appreciate the opportunity. The Shift Shapers podcast is a production of the Saltzman Group. We work with entrepreneurs, executives, and companies just like you to help shape the shifts in your business. To schedule a 20-minute call to learn more, visit our website at thesaltzmangroup.com or call me directly at 803-386-8005. I'd love to hear from you. And while you're on our site, you can also click the podcast tab for the entire catalog of Shift Shapers episodes and to access some really great special offers. Give me a call at 803-386-8005 and learn how to put the secrets of the Shift Shapers to work in your business. 